Ajanolambato Bhujo Kanakabadato Sankitanaya Kapitaro Kamalaya Takshu Vishwambaro Dvijabaro Yuga Dharma Palo Bande Jagat Priyakaro Karunabhutaro Shri Gauri Vashnapur Parampara Ki Jai Rinam Prabhu Ki Jai Simad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai so in the last two, do we have two meetings before? Mm-hmm. Two? We discussed the introduction to this edition of Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, its feeling and philosophy. And today we're beginning chapter one. As you know, Bhagavad Gita consists of 18 chapters. And there's three divisions in Bhagavad Gita of six chapters. First six chapters largely deal with the psychology of the Bhagavad Gita, yoga psychology, and knowledge of Tvam, Tattvam Asi is a famous Upanishadic aphorism. So, Tvam is you, us, something about us, our nature. But the full picture of us cannot be understood unless we understand ourselves in relation to God, Tat. And this is the subject then primarily of the middle six chapters, the theology of the Bhagavad Gita, and the means for the most comprehensive type of union or yoga as described. So bhakti is the subject of Lord and bhakti, the middle six chapters, and the final six chapters. So we have the psychology of the Bhagavad Gita, the theology really of the Bhagavad Gita, and then we have the metaphysics of the Bhagavad Gita in the final six chapters, which explain in greater detail the knowledge that's given in the first six chapters and also to some extent in the second six chapters. And of course we have the conclusion in the final chapter, which after summarizing what's taken place, what's been described thus far, the conclusion really reiterates that which was given in the ninth chapter at the end. So we'll come to all that over some months. But today we are discussing chapter one, a chapter that is uh, often neglected or thought to be less important than the other chapters after all. It's Bhagavad Gita, which means the Song of God. And Krishna doesn't begin speaking until the second chapter. He's introduced for the first time, mentioned in this chapter, in verse 14, but um, as is Arjuna, but he doesn't start speaking until the second chapter. Bhagavad Gita is sometimes called Gita Upanishad. We have Prastantrai, three famous works that are most often quoted from or commented upon by someone who seeks to establish themselves in the world of Vedanta. Upanishads, then the sutras, Brahma Sutra or Vedanta Sutra, which seeks to show the organic and wholesome nature of those Upanishads that seem to cover a lot of ground, but really are saying only one thing. 
So the sutras seek to demonstrate that. So we have the Upanishads themselves, the Brahma Sutras, and then Bhagavad Gita. And Bhagavad Gita is, of course, easier to understand than the Upanishads and easier to understand than the Vedanta Sutra as well. I think I mentioned this previously, that in the 700 verses of Bhagavad Gita, everything that is found in the Upanishads is found in a much more palatable form. It's called sometimes Gita Upanishad because it is spoken by Krishna himself, and the Shruti, or the Upanishads, are considered to have been breathed by the Lord. They're often given more credence than the Smriti in certain sectors. So, he starts speaking in chapter 2, but we shouldn't neglect chapter 1 or any of those other statements throughout the book that aren't directly uttered by the Lord. Sometimes logic is given that just as salt in the ocean becomes part of the ocean and is not distinguishable from the ocean itself, so the words of Vyas and the introductory verses in this chapter in particular are all to be considered equally important as Krishna's own words that he utters himself beginning in chapter 2. So we should pay attention to chapter 1. There's much to be gained from it actually. And in one sense the whole Bhagavad Gita is put in the first chapter and more so even it can be said it's put in the first verse as well. So we'll discuss the first verse tonight and then I think we'll in the next session, go on from there and discuss up to verse 14, where, as I said, Krishna mentioned in Arjun, come into the picture, there's a shift there in, in the Gita, and uh, then on to the end of the chapter from there. So one of the things that we're trying to accomplish here in these meetings is that in discussing the Bhagavad Gita, all of you get some sense of how it works. One of the most... Uh, commonly asked questions of Srila Prabhupada, my Gurmarsh, of someone he met who had said that they read the Bhagavad Gita was, what is the conclusion? Do you know? And often the reply came that they didn't know there was a conclusion. It's kind of a book where you just open it up and you find an important saying and you think about it for the day and and you close it. Or magically you open it and it, it seems to just open to the page that, that you needed to hear that it was actually, uh, it all fit together into an organic whole and had a conclusion and so forth that uh, apparently eludes a lot of people. And some commentators have not helped in that regard. Many things are mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, that's true, but it does have a theme and a conclusion and it's an organic whole, so to speak. So I want you to try to grasp kind of get that sense. And this commentary has been written in such a way as to help the reader do that. And so, for example, as I mentioned today, I'm going to discuss verse 1, then we'll discuss up to verse 14. So as we go along through this entire text, we find that uh, there are verses are connected and there are sections of verses that go together and there's a logic to why Krishna speaks each verse. There's a background 
to it. There's the, the thoughts of Arjuna, the questions that are implied, pressing on his mind that Krishna is sensitive to and responds to. So they're kind of invisible to the ordinary reader. We, would, we try to bring those out, as I say, and show that the logic of them, how they connect to one another, and so forth. So the first verse, first of all, the chapter, the ancient name for this chapter, each chapter has a name, and each chapter is called a yoga, or yoga, in a sense, means means, by which. So the ancient name for this chapter is called Vishada Yoga. You may be familiar with my Guru Maharaj's edition of Bhagavad Gita, and he calls the first chapter Sanyadarshan, means uh, observing the armies. That does seem to be what it's about. That name has been given by Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur in his commentary, and perhaps, I don't recall, but I think Baldev Bijibhushan, his student, may have followed suit in that regard. But the more ancient name, the name... For example, that uh, the famous Sridhar Swami gives or acknowledges for the first chapter is Vishada Yoga and the commentaries of our Acharyas in Gaudiya Sampradaya, the principal Acharyas who first commented on Bhagavad Gita, the seminal commentaries in our lineage, that those of Vishwanath, Chakoti Thakur and Balde Bhushana, they follow very closely Sridhar Swami's commentary, often verbatim. So, I have chosen to go with this more ancient name, Vishada Yoga. Vishada means despair, which is the general condition in this world. And to one lesser or greater extent, people acknowledge that. And the more that they do, and the more that they recognize and understand the state of affairs here to be one of despair, then greater potential there is for them to try to make some change, some radical change. Oftentimes when we get in a very awkward situation or our state of despair, which is more or less constant, whether we admit it or not, but more or less constant in this world, when it reaches a really low ebb in relation to a particular event in our life, then it becomes an impetus to, to get up and finally do something. The nature of despair is such that we also learn to, to tolerate it. But when it gets too bad, then we can't tolerate it any longer. We do something. Now, the, the, really, the condition of the material world, is, it's very bad for us in as much as a fish would be in a bad position out of water. Very bad. But we... We're trying to evolve <laughs> and grow legs and arms and <laughs> and, be a, and survive on the land, so to speak. But if we look deeply within ourselves, and, and, and of course that's not enough. If we have help, good guidance, that combination, acknowledging the extent to which our condition is really a predicament is one side of it. And when we do... All we can really do is cry out for help. It's that bad. Our situation is so awkward. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has given an advice. He said, Trinadapi sunichena tororapi sahishnuna amanina manadena kirtaniya sadahari. 
he says, one should think oneself more humble than a straw in the street, a piece of straw fallen on the ground. One should be more tolerant than a tree. One should not expect any honor for oneself, but give all honor to others. And when one can do this, he says, one can chant the name of God without interruption. One can make a uninterrupted connection with divinity and progress from there in terms of the development of love of God. Previous to not making a mental adjustment, that's not what he's talking about, but to realizing the truth of our position as it really is in terms of this Trinata Pisunichena, lower than a blade of grass, lower than a straw on the street. Before realizing that, coming to grips with that, understanding the, the significance of that, our bhajan, our whatever it may be, meditation, our efforts, our attempts to make a connection with Godhead and thereby a solution to our predicament are intermittent at best. You like if you keep getting bumped off the internet. What Mahabha was talking about is like DSL, something like that. <laughs> you, know, you can go at very high speeds and you're always connected. You don't have to get on and get off at any particular time. Broadband connection. So what does it mean to understand this truth? He's saying one should think like this. But I'm saying, what he's saying is not that you should make a mental adjustment and think I'm humble, that I should be humble. That's not a bad idea, that I should be humble, I should think like that, yes. He's certainly not talking about a psychological dysfunctionality and some neurosis wherein one is um, lacking in self-esteem. He's not advocating something like that. It might sound like that on the surface. What he's saying is, this is hard to come to grips with. Therefore, it's said often in Bengal that, oh, it was such a nice idea, I thought, to become a Gaudiya Vaishnav and pursue the teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But then I heard this shloka, and I knew it wasn't possible. It's hard to come to grips with. This is the crux. This is where we go, we actually enter into real, consistent, spiritual practice that brings consistent results. And this is what we want. We want to practice in such a way that we're getting some result, we're feeling, we're making progress. Not that the car is constantly stalling. So many higher things are there. We talked about the highest reach of Bhagavad Gita. And in this first verse, it comes out to some extent. But we should know that to go there, we have to cross this junction, Trinata Pisinichina. So what does it mean? It means this, that one should think oneself to be lower than a straw on the street. The straw on the street means an inanimate object. It offers no resistance. Our position is, if we think about it, in relation to a straw on the street, it's very great. And we can move, we can talk, we can think, we can write books. What is this? Or a blade of grass. We walk across the grass, it bends over, we don't even think about it. Now we are told by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the reality is, that you're actually lower than a blade of grass. How can we come to grips with that? How is that possible? We are human beings. This is an inanimate uh, 
especially a straw on the street, any inanimate object. The idea is that everything that we have that distinguishes us from that straw on the street, our capacity to think, our, our, our very intelligence, our instruments of perception, all of these things, and this is hard to swallow, are deceiving us. And we're relying on them. We put our faith in them as if they were all we had to go on, especially our reason. We can talk about the imperfection of the senses in terms of perceiving, and it's a little easier to follow. If I say the eyes are imperfect in terms of perceiving, and I point out to you that, well, look at a distant object, and the eyes may tell you it's this, but when you get closer, it's something else. Anyone can readily understand that, yes, that instrument of perception is defective. Similarly with hearing and touching and so forth. In the dark, you may touch something and think it's one thing. And you turn on the light, it might be something quite different. You might not want to be near it <laughs> at all. But further, our reasoning power, this is very hard to digest. With our reasoning power, we cannot get an accurate reading of the nature of reality. <laughs> this is very hard to digest, but it's true. Atma, the self, the soul, is categorically different than all of these things that we've surrounded ourselves with, which are all a product of our actually moving away from truth. Karmic reaction, this body, our particular set of senses, intellect, to one extent or another. These instruments, in and of themselves cannot help us. Not only can they not help us, they make us like an armed bandit or like a, one of those uh, stock market inside trading racketeers. It looks good. It's a clean operation, but it's very diabolical and millions of dollars can be stolen. What a man can do at the grocery store or the liquor store with a gun get a few dollars out of the cash register and what somebody can do on the, on the stock market is vastly different. And one looks very clean, repaka. So our human life is such, unguided, that is to say, by a real sadhu and in pursuit of God consciousness, these instruments that we have make us in a worse position than that blade of grass. They give us an improper reading of the nature of reality, and we have faith in that reading, especially in what we can reason about. And the work of a sadhu is so difficult, especially to deal with the intelligent sector of society, the higher end of the society. Soul, if it is superior in nature to intellect, doesn't have to answer to it. So what to speak of God? And so if we investigate this, solely with our intellect, then the truth in it, the feeling in it, the juice of life will evaporate, be gone. It's very hard to digest, especially for an intelligent person. Somehow we have to engage ourselves in a means, a yoga, that affords us knowing to the extent that intellect will not. So that has to come down from above to us take us to that plane. It may answer to reasoning to this extent that it tells us, it gives a good bashing to our reasoning power, that it's limited. What you can know with that? 
it's limited at best. So Mahaprabhu is saying, the straw on the street is actually in a better position, the blade of grass, in one sense. Because we are armed to the teeth for a suicidal mission with our brain power and sensual power and so forth. If we can understand this and start to swallow that pill, so to speak, Sridharmarsh used to like to use a Hegelian term, die to live, die to the life based on the reading of reality drawn from our limited intellect and senses. Die to that, to live on another plane altogether. This is our folly, in a sense. We want to capture the infinite, and we are a negligible part of that. So if that's not folly enough, we want to do it without giving ourselves fully as well, once we've heard about it, that it's possible. <laughs> that's such an impossible thing is possible. This is the teaching, actually, of Bhagavad Gita, the, the ultimate teaching of Bhagavad Gita. It comes in verse 4, later on in this chapter. It's hinted at and driven home, of course, throughout the text. Krishna is the charioteer of Arjuna. That is the whole sum and substance of Bhagavad Gita. The absolute infinite has become captured by his devotee. He become the, the taxi driver of Arjuna, rickshaw driver, chariot driver. Go turn here, turn there. Take my chariot, let me see who's on the other side, Arjuna says. So we are told that such a thing is possible, that we can have this kind of relationship with the infinite, although we ourselves are a negligible part of that. That in itself sounds to be a folly, but the scripture is telling us it's possible. So it becomes wonderful news. But then we think, what, as I say, really becomes a folly, that we can only give a negligible part of ourself to accomplish this. It means we shouldn't come to these sessions just to hear something and stimulate our intellect, but that we might be inspired to put into practice that by which we can realize these things. And that Whatever practice that is, we we take up. And of course, we recommend the particular practice. You have to do that wholeheartedly. Don't expect to get something more out of it than what you put into it. I mean, you will get more out of it than what you put into it. That's true. But you have to put everything into it to get that out of it. <laughs> so, yoga of despair. Arjun in this chapter is in despair. And we are in despair, at least we should be in despair. We may not be. We may have a comfortable income, a nice family, and so many things. Later on in the Gita, Krishna says, he says about this material condition of life that is ashashvatam. He says it is dukalayam and ashashvatam. Dukkha means miserable. He said this is miserable. So if we respond, I don't think it's miserable. I'm happy. I have a nice family. I have a good job. So many things. Then he says, Ashashvatam. And it makes it that much worse. He says, well, that's nice, but you can't keep it. <laughs> the more you like it, 
the reality that you can't keep it makes it that much worse. And this is also, of course, a very central theme to the universal book Bhagavad Gita. It is universal in its application. We are in a particular sect, but this sect is formed after hearing things like Bhagavad Gita and having a particular angle on it, and so therefore we form a uh, discipline based on it, and we have a close and uh, things we do and things we don't do and, and so forth. All of those things are after the Bhagavad Gita is spoken. They are responses to the Bhagavad Gita, particular responses. Some of them may be better than others, but the Bhagavad Gita is not for a particular group of people. It's for everyone. It's for everyone in this world, all of whom are in a state of despair, whether they realize it or not. And the cause of their despair is addressed uh, right at the onset here, in the very first verse. So let me read the first verse, and we'll discuss some of the important um, points that can be drawn from it. Dhritarashtra Uvacha Dhamakshetre Kurukshetre Samaveta Yuyutsavaha Mamakapandavashchaiva Kimakurvata Sanjaya So Dhritarashtra said, What did my sons and the sons of Pandu do as they assembled at sacred Kurukshetra, eager to fight? I'll read a little bit from the commentary. Bhagavad Gita appears in the Bhishma Parva of the Hindu epic Mahabharata. Its 700 verses make up only one chapter in the world's longest epic amid romance, political intrigue, war, dharma, the path of righteousness, is woven throughout the fabric of Mahabharata. The Bhagavad Gita brings to light the very essence of dharma, prema dharma, the dharma of love. So some of you may be familiar with Mahabharata. It's, uh, as I mentioned here, a great uh, Hindu epic. I think it's seven times longer than the Iliad and Odyssey, the famous Greek epics combined. And it's quite masterful in terms of literature how Bhagavad Gita fits into the Mahabharata because the text, by the time the Gita is spoken, has every reader sitting on the edge of his seat. As I mentioned here, politics, romance, all type of intrigue. You're acquainted with all of the characters, loving some, hating others, very emotionally involved, a masterpiece. And while Dharma in general is being promoted throughout the text, when we get to the Bhishma Parva and Bhagavad Gita, then it's taken to another level. And as I say, everyone at that point is, is on the edge of the seats. The war that's been building up for chapters, the intrigue behind it and so forth, which you've studied, and, and as I say, you know the villains and you know the heroes, and now the, the war is actually going to start. It's a foregone conclusion. All efforts to stop it have failed. Armies are on either side, lined up, and the great warrior, Arjuna, Krishna's friend, enters into an uh, unexpected state of despair for the great hero that he was. Hero, pious, 
kind of person. We should study the character of Arjun. Because the kind of character that Arjun has will tell us something about the kind of person who will be able to take advantage of Bhagavad Gita. It's a person who is in despair, but is intelligent also and pious and seeks, therefore, a particular solution to despair that others who are not of that stature or character would not. In other words, other people seek other solutions to their despair, such as uh, taking intoxication. And uh, it can take many forms, like simple as turning on the television. The exercise of entertainment, the uh, where we want to just take a break from everything, just kind of forget about everything, this is a kind of intoxication, actually. It's a way of dealing with the problem, the pervading problem of vishada, despair. It's not what Arjun did. We should study the character of Arjun, a certain type of person. So we turn to a solution, approaching Krishna, a knowledgeable person, inquiring from him, submissively. So, as I say, masterful in terms of literature, we're at this point in Mahabharata, on the edge of our seat, and the war is about to begin. Arjuna is plunged into despair. What will he do? Everyone's listening. And our author takes us to new heights in terms of Dharma. Righteousness in general, as I say, is woven throughout the fabric of Mahabharata. Dharma in general. But Further still, in Bhagavad Gita, we get a glimpse of Prema Dharma, the, the actual, really the Dharma of love. And we talked about this to some extent in the introduction. And in that discussion, how we're, in our tradition, approaching Bhagavad Gita and how we're drawing that out. And it will come out to some extent in this first verse. The first chapter of the Gita introduces the reader to the historical setting in which Krishna and Arjuna's sacred conversation, which constitutes the balance of the Gita, will take place. Chariots are drawn in military array, and the war is now inevitable. The fratricidal clash that the Mahabharata has been leading to is beyond stopping. The sons of Dhritarashtra, led by Duryodhana, are on one side, and the sons of Dhritarashtra's deceased brother Pandu, led by Yudhisthira, on the other. Dhritarashtra was blind from birth, yet the sage Vyas offered him eyes to witness the battle. How unsightly the battle was to be is clear from Dhritarashtra's refusal of Vyasa's offer. Indeed, Dhritarashtra, his attachment for Duryodhana, his son, blinding him to justice was instrumental in this unfortunate turn of events. Had his sense of justice not been overruled by material attachment for his son, the battle might have been avoided. As overtly unbecoming as Dhritarashtra's role was, it gave Krishna the opportunity to speak about the nature of attachment, its consequences, detachment, and ultimately love of God. From the great evil of a fratricidal war based on selfish desire, the greatest good emerges. The Bhagavad Gita takes us on a religious and spiritual journey from selfishness to selflessness in love of God through an exhaustive 
comparative analysis, Krishna brings his disciple and dear friend Arjun, one of the sons of Maharaj Pandu, to the path of devotion. So Dhritarashtra, Dhritarashtra Vacha. Dhritarashtra is, as mentioned here, the uh, blind king. He says, Dhritarashtra Vacha, Dhritarashtra said, Dharma Kshetre Guru Kshetre Samaveta Yuyutsava Mamaka Pandavas Jaiva Kimakurvata Sanjaya. So, as I mentioned here in the first verse, the whole problem of life is given in one word, Mamaka, mine. He said, Dhritarashtra, on the sacred battlefield of Kurukshetra, which you referred to also as Dharmakshetra, my sons, Mamaka, and the sons of Pandu have assembled to fight. What did they do? So Mamaka, this is the whole problem, mine, minus. It's the whole problem, and it's the whole solution, too, all in one. <laughs> Dhritarashtra, it's all one family. As I mentioned, there's a fratricidal war, so it's all one family. But he distinguished between his sons and the sons of Pandu, all one big family, but not a very happy one, apparently. Dhritarashtra was brother of Pandu, so they're all in the same family. His sons, the sons of Pandu, all relatives, but he's distinguishing my sons and the sons of Pandu. Dhritarashtra was a very learned person. He was the son of Vyas. Vyas was compiled all the scriptures. So good heritage, learned. He knew that Krishna was God, but he didn't act upon it. Why? Because of Mamaka. This is why. The power of attachment is so strong that even uh, knowledgeable persons are forced to act against the knowledge that they've acquired. Krishna brings this out in, later in chapter 3, of course, where he says that um, Arjuna wonders, what is it that makes people do things that just aren't in their interest, as if they're forced to, when they know better not to? This attachment, desire, attachment... In one sense, the problem of life is death. And why is death a problem? As I said, ashashvatam, dukalayam, it's temporary, it's miserable, and even if you like it, well, it's temporary, so it makes it that much worse. So it's a problem. Death is a problem because, why? Because we're attached to things that we can't hang on to. Otherwise, it's not a problem. It's just a transformation in process, which is what's going on constantly. We're seeing that happen daily. Everything is in constant flux transformation from day to night from cloudy to rainy and so forth people come, people go but when we become attached to something and then it's going to be taken away from us then the whole thing becomes a problem so we resist the transformation so to speak that life is all about we resist it, we don't understand it we see it happening but when it's happening to us when it becomes apparent, I should say, that it's happening to us, it becomes a problem. So how we can conquer death? By detachment. Attachment is the problem, and detachment is the solution. But that's not so easy to become detached to something that we're attached to.
I should mention that while we speak of higher things, high ideals, and we inspire or encourage persons to pursue them, we don't want to do it in such a way that it results in some type of schizophrenia where I want the highest thing and I've been told that I should get it. But my practical reality is I have other interests as well. This is the problem. <laughs> Especially in the Western society, we are used to buying things on credit. So even though we don't have the bank balance, we're going to get it anyway. So we hear about such high ideals like Braj Bhakti, and we want that. We're told we should want that. We should be eager for that. But the practical reality in our life is that many other things are occupying our consciousness, our minds, our senses, many other things. And we really want them. No matter how much someone tells us and how much we respect that person who tells us and how much we believe that person who tells us that they aren't worth pursuing at all. We are told by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur while he was speaking, we are told about him, that while he was speaking on one occasion, inviting people to participate in what he was speaking about to the extent that he said, my only request for you, to you, is that you don't go home. He had a mela, a festival. So many people were invited. He spoke about Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And everyone was very thankful and there was prashad and kirtan and drama and, and so many things. And then after the whole festival, he said, the fellow who put the festival on, he had one request of all the audience. They said, well, one request? The whole thing's been free and he has only one request and he's a sadhu. What will he ask? He doesn't have any desires. This was his only request. Don't go home. Try to understand what I invited you to participate in. And to what extent, he said? And if you say to me, but Maharaj, my house is on fire. I say, it doesn't matter. Don't go home. Even if your house is on fire, that's not a good enough excuse. We should try to build a house on a place where there is no death. That's where we should find our home. Get some footing in that plane. One brick in place there. One stone turned over in the course of getting a footing in that place is more valuable than a house of gold bricks on this plane. And as I say, we can hear it, and it's true. It's absolutely true. And we should hear about it. We should try to come to grips with it, but in a mature way. Because as I say, we hear it. We hear it from somebody we respect. We believe it. But we like those gold bricks. We are attached. It's a problem. So we have to approach this in a balanced way. Thakur Bhakti Vinod was, was a characteristic of his preaching. Very balanced. Very conservative, actually. He emphasized that we factor in the chanting of the holy name of Krishna into our life in a substantial way. And Grihe Thakur Vane Thakur Stay in your position. We should know, and Bhagavad Gita, of course, is a good lesson in this. What is the progression? There's a high end and there's a low end. And we may be entering really on the low end of the whole thing, but if we know what it is, how great it is, that's very comforting, whatever connection we have with it. If we can understand how great it is, even a small connection, and a real connection, 
Real beauty is to know one's position and act accordingly. There is nothing more unbecoming than not understanding what you really are, what your adhikar is, what your eligibility is in any field, and acting as if it's something else. You're just an embarrassment to others and to yourself. So Bhagavad says, real beauty is to know your position and act accordingly. And that will call your progress. One person may be a tyagi, a renunciate, a nirapiksha, vaishnav. Another person may be a sanishta, bhakta, who has material desires. Characteristically, it's described, sanishta bhakta is one who wants to go to heaven on the way to Goloka. <laughs> we may think, I don't want to go to heaven, but we want all kind of heavenly things, actually. Most of us, we have those desires. So we may be bhakta, but sanishta bhakta. But if that sanishta bhakta does what he's supposed to do in that position, he's as glorious as the nirapiksha vaishnav. He'll call his own progress as much as that nirapiksha vaishnav, renounced vaishnav, will call progress. So knowing our position and acting accordingly, so this is important, and knowing our position in relation to the whole scheme, the whole development of bhakti. In other words, we want to know where we're supposed to go, how to get there, and the highest thing will not be purchased for little, as I said. We want the whole thing. We only want to give a little bit of ourselves for that. What is really to be sacrificed, in the beginning, the sanishta bhakta, he'll be encouraged to give something from his or her pursuit of those things that he or she wants, the effort to acquire that, uh, something from the fruit of that should be offered for the propagation of this dharma. In time, we'll realize what's really being offered, asked, is that you be offered yourself on the altar. Put yourself there, not just something that's in your pocket. We can start with that. And if under good guidance, we follow this type of approach and cultivating at the same time, in accordance with our intellectual capacity, the theory, the theoretical knowledge, then we can go step by step and make progress, be psychologically balanced and spiritually progressive. This was very much the emphasis of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, through whom, of course, this whole tradition, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, has come to the modern world. So Mamaka, he was attached. We all have material attachments. And as I say, this is not a sectarian message. This isn't for any particular religious group. This is for everybody. And within Gaudiya Vaishnavism, it doesn't matter what group you're in also. There are groups within groups within groups. This is for everybody. Assess the reality of your minus, minus, mamaka. We are a unit of consciousness, but we are attached to the body. The self has a capacity to extend itself. So, for example, we are extended throughout the whole body, just like the sun has a capacity to extend itself through its rays and pervade the whole world. So we as a unit of consciousness have a capacity to extend ourselves throughout the body and beyond the body as well. So we say, my house, my car. If it's my house and it burns down, it's a problem. 
if I sold a house yesterday to somebody else and I couldn't wait to get out of it and it burns down, and I, I don't feel the same way at all. Why do I feel that it's a problem when I'm living? Because it's my house. So I've extended myself, sense of self, into the house, into the car, into the family and society, whatever it is, that I think is mine. What's really important in all this is me. In other words, why that house is important? Because I've extended myself into it. I've projected myself into it. Therefore, it's important. So what's important in the house? No, it's me. I project myself into the car, so I call it my car. If it gets in an accident, it's a problem. I feel hurt. I have to do something about it. I have to call my friend and be concerned. Cars are bumping into cars all over the place in San Francisco. And you don't think twice about it. It doesn't get in the paper. There was an accident here, an accident there. I mean, the big ones come, but, you know, if you get your fender bent, they don't have a page in the Chronicle. This fender was bent on this corner. That headlight was put out on that corner. But when it happens to you, it's noteworthy. It's, it's news. It's a problem. Because it's your car. It means it's you. So what's important is you. The self is important to us. That's a lesson we should learn. The self is important. When we project ourselves into something else, when we superimpose ourself onto material objects and we come up with a material identity, then whenever that sense of self is in crisis, it's a problem for me. What we should learn is that I'm important. The consciousness is important. The soul is important. The self is important. We should turn now focus inward to understand the nature of self. And when we come to the extent that we do that, this minus then, this mine disappears. When we move from sanishta bhakta to parnishta bhakta, for example. Sanishta bhakta means I've got things I want. I want to be a devotee, but I want to be happy. Also, is that much to ask? <laughs> No, so then you have to pursue that, just like everybody else who wants to be happy materially. They have to put a lot of energy into it. You should try to be the best that you can be in the particular field that you're in, that you're interested in, and be a devotee at the same time. And in the course of pursuing that, as I say, some fruits that you acquire should be offered in sacrifice for the propagation of dharma. As you do that, for example, that what's dear to us in the sanishta condition is our money. Let's say you come to the ashram and you listen. You may come, you may listen. It may be interesting, you may get something out of it. If you give money to it, oh, then you're going to be really concerned about what goes on there. <laughs> Your consciousness will go there. What are they doing with my money there? How is it being spent? <laughs> so we are concerned about ourselves in a material sense, yet we want to be a devotee. That's a real position. But to move from there, Parnishta means concerned about the welfare of others. So sometimes we meet people that are concerned about the welfare of others. There may be people who even question the validity of, of a teaching that uh, speaks about transcending material existence altogether and being preoccupied in meditation and so forth when there are so many problems in the world and their people are suffering and so forth. So when a person gets a bit of a compassionate heart, He's moving beyond his smaller sense of self to a bigger sense. We're, we're all humans. We're on the same, well, we're all on the same planet. 
We should care about others. What about the environment? And of course, if he's also a devotee, he got shradha, he got good sangha with the sadhus, he knows, oh, the whole thing is temporary, but still, I'm here, and should try to make it better. And so he may be involved, parinishta, with some helping others, concern for that. He's a bigger person than just sanishta. Now, of course, these categories are much in between gray and so forth, but from parinishta to nirapiksha. And ultimately, nirapiksha, he's so absorbed in this ideal that he can't spend any time in anything else, making a permanent solution. He's absorbed himself in the practice, meditation, and culture, and so forth. And if he does anything in relation to others, it's to help them to get involved only. Only that. We're dealing with different degrees of minus. When we get to the nirapeksha, this kind of devotee, he is free from the general sense of minus, that it's mine. He's detached. Ayati, a tyagi, and a devotee. A monk, for example. And free from material sense of minus, because he's in a devotional school, he's cultivating a minus of another type, that Krishna's mind. Minus is the problem and minus is the solution. Krishna's mind. This is the ideal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Every cowherd in Golok thinks, Krishna's mine. Every coward thinks, I'm his best friend. Every one of them thinks, I am the best friend. Of all of Krishna's friends, he likes me the most. Every one of them feels like that. And every one of them is right. And every gopi thinks, he's mine, but I'm not sure. Just like in any... This is, we can understand from the nature of our material relationships, these things. In a conjugal relationship, there's a strong sense that she's mine or he's mine, but there's always a doubt. Did I say the wrong thing? Is he going to go out the door? Is she mad at me now? I thought I had her, but now... So every gopi feels it but wonders. So anyway, this kind of minus, that is a very high thing. We want to cultivate that, but the direct cultivation of that will only be possible, proportionate to the extent that we've become free from that other sense of minus based on bodily conception of life. So Dhritarashtra is suffering from that. Such a learned person he was. He was, as I said, the son of Vyas. You cannot find a more learned father than Vyas. But all of his knowledge, he knew that Krishna was God. By the force of his material attachments, he put it down, put it aside and was instrumental in this whole battle, war, battle of Kurukshetra. Of course, Bhagavad Gita is misunderstood by many people who think it's about fighting, and, uh, and they wonder how the fighting can be justified and so forth. But it's, it's not about killing people. It's about killing our material attachments through knowledge and devotion. That's what it's about. And the fact of the matter is, if you don't do that, you will be a violent person, no matter how nonviolently you think you're living. So Bhagavad Gita is about nonviolence to the extreme. The wonderful thing about this type of literature is, as I said, it looks just the opposite here. Like in Gopi Lila, we've explained, it looks like the most selfish thing. They're running out on their husbands, bringing potential shame to the whole village, the whole dynasty. They're doing it anyway because of attachment to Krishna. 
It looks very selfish, but if we look inside that, what is the theology, we find, oh, it's selflessness to the extreme. Taking such a form, it's service and sacrifice, giving of oneself to the extreme. Then it takes that shape such that the giving nature of it is camouflaged to some extent, that not just anybody can get in there. It's a secret thing, very high realm. The whole of Golok looks like the opposite of what we teach. We teach detachment, and Golok looks like a bunch of people attached to their home, to their family, to their houses, their cows. So service, bhakti, bhakti has uh, different um, expressions. But we should know this without a doubt. What we see in Gopi Lila, for example, Krishna Lila with the Gopis, inside of that is selflessness to the extreme. So we have to start with this. This is what it's all about. You can collect all the information you want about Krishna Lila, and it's a beautiful literature and very uh, attractive to read. But we can deceive ourselves in thinking we've gone somewhere just by collecting information. The real test is to what extent are we becoming attached? Not that we've just got some new religious doctrine or jargon and we can regurgitate it and sound like we know something more than somebody else that hasn't heard the information. And we should try to avoid all these kind of traps. Most people, the majority of people that come to this kind of tradition, even in over years, need to deal with very basic issues. They should be educated theoretically in so many things, it's true, especially if they have the capacity, if they have a good teacher who can educate them. But he should see to it that they thoroughly understand progress in that direction to such a high thing as Braj Bhakti, for example, which Bhagavad Gita alludes to. Progress in that direction will be determined practically when we look to see in detachment, in the happiness that comes from that. There's a story of one guru had a disciple, taught him many things, and then went traveling for many years. Came back and found that disciple who was previously living just simply along the bank of the river, hearing the message from his Guru Dave. Somehow, when his Guru had gone in his absence over years, he got distracted. Oh, he complicated his life. He got a partner, he had children, he had a cow, and so many things developed. So when his guru came back after many years, I said, come, sit by the river. I'll tell you what I learned in my travels. He said, oh, Guru Dave, I want to come, but you just came at the wrong night. I've got cow to milk, and I've got a baby to feed, and I've got, my wife is sick, and I've got to do this, and so many things are calling on me. So many things are, are holding me back that I can't come. It's such a unfortunate that you would have come tonight. Not that tomorrow would have been better. Actually, I have all the things to do. So Gurudev said, that's all right. There's no problem. So many things are holding you back. Anyway, I will go and bathe in the river. So he bathed in the river and then shortly afterwards, disciple is at his house and he hears, help! 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 Disciple comes in. There's Gurudev holding on to a, a branch of a tree that's floating in the river and, it's, and he's holding it and it's about to take him down the river. He's holding it, holding it. Help, help! The disciple says, Gurudev, what's the matter? This tree is holding me. It's taking me down the river. The disciple says, well, Gurudev, let go. The tree's not holding you. You're holding the tree. He says, yes, I think you've learned very nicely. 
we're holding on, things aren't holding us. We don't place the blame anywhere else. Attachment lies within our own heart. So this we should look to see. Knowledge will be helpful. Applying that knowledge in devotional practices, of course, all these things will help us. To the extent that they are helping us, this is the measuring point for a long time, how much detachment is coming. Then we will look how much attachment is coming on the other side. It will go on simultaneously. But before the attachment on one side, Krishna starts to develop and become really the greater balance. And we should look on the other side. My sons, Mamaka, and the sons of Pandu have assembled and, uh, to fight. What did they do? So Mamaka, this is the whole problem. Mine. Minus. It's the whole problem, and it's the whole solution, too. All in one. <laughs> Dhritarashtra is all one family. As I mentioned, it's a fratricidal war, so it's all one family. But he distinguished between his sons and the sons of Pandu. All one big family, but not a very happy one, apparently. Dhritarashtra was brother of Pandu, so they're all in the same family. His sons, the sons of Pandu, all relatives. But he's distinguishing my sons and the sons of Pandu. Dhritarashtra was a very learned person. He was the son of Vyas. Vyas was compiled all the scriptures. So good heritage, learned. He knew that Krishna was God, but he didn't act upon it. Why? Because of Mamaka. This is why. The power of attachment is so strong that even uh, knowledgeable persons are forced to act against the knowledge that they've acquired. Krishna brings this out in, later in chapter 3, of course, where he says that um, Arjuna wonders, what is it that makes people do things that just aren't in their interest, as if they're forced to, when they know better not to? This attachment, desire, attachment. In one sense, the problem of life is death, and but why is death a problem? As I said, ashashvatam, dukalayam, it's temporary, it's miserable, and even if you like it, well, it's temporary, so it makes it that much worse. So it's a problem. Death is a problem because, why? Because we're attached to things that we can't hang on to. Otherwise, it's not a problem. It's just a transformation in process, which is what's going on constantly. We're seeing that happen daily. Everything is in constant flux. Transformation from day to night, from cloudy to rainy, and so forth. People come, people go. But when we become attached to something, and then it's going to be taken away from us, then the whole thing becomes a problem. So we resist the transformation, so to speak, that life is all about. We resist it, we don't understand it. We see it happening, but when it's happening to us, when it becomes apparent, I should say, that it's happening to us, it becomes a problem. So how we can conquer death by Detachment. Attachment is the problem, and detachment is the solution. But that's not so easy to become detached to something that we're attached to. I should mention that while we speak of higher things, high ideals, and we inspire or encourage persons to pursue them, we don't want to do it in such a way 
that it results in some type of schizophrenia where I want the highest thing and I've been told that I should get it. But my practical reality is I have other interests as well. This is a problem, <laughs> especially in the Western society. We are used to buying things on credit. So even though we don't have the bank balance, we're going to get it anyway. So we hear about such high ideals like Braj Bhakti, and we want that. We're told we should want that. We should be eager for that. But the practical reality in our life is that many other things are occupying our consciousness, our minds, our senses, many other things, and we really want them. No matter how much someone tells us and how much we respect that person who tells us and how much we believe that person who tells us that they aren't worth pursuing at all. We are told by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur while he was speaking, we are told about him, that while he was speaking on one occasion, inviting people to participate in what he was speaking about to the extent that he said, my only request for you, to you is that you don't go home. He had a mela, a festival. So many people were invited. He spoke about Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And everyone was very thankful. And there was prashad and kirtan and drama and, and so many things. And then after the whole festival, he said, the fellow who put the festival on, he had one request of all the audience. They said, well, one request? The whole thing's been free and he has only one request. And he's a sadhu. What will he ask? He doesn't have any desires. This was his only request. Don't go home. Try to understand what I invited you to participate in. And to what extent, he said. And if you say to me, but Maharaj, my house is on fire. I say, it doesn't matter. Don't go home. Even if your house is on fire, that's not a good enough excuse. We should try to build a house on a place where there is no death. That's where we should find our home. Get some footing in that plane. One brick in place there. One stone turned over in the course of getting a footing in that place is more valuable than a house of gold bricks on this plane. And as I say, we can hear it, and it's true. It's absolutely true. And we should hear about it. We should try to come to grips with it, but in a mature way. Because as I say, we hear it. We hear it from somebody we respect. We believe it. But we like those gold bricks. We are attached. It's a problem. So we have to approach this in a balanced way. Thakur Bhaktivinod was, was a characteristic of his preaching. Very balanced. Very conservative, actually. He emphasized that we factor in the chanting of the holy name of Krishna into our life in a substantial way. And grihe thako vane thako sada hari bole dako Stay in your position. We should know, and Bhagavad Gita, of course, is a good lesson in this. What is the progression? There's a high end and there's a low end. And we may be entering really on the low end of the whole thing, but if we know what it is, how great it is, that's very comforting, whatever connection we have with it. If we can understand how great it is, even a small connection, and a real connection, Real beauty is to know one's position and act accordingly. There is nothing more unbecoming than not understanding what you really are, what your adhikar is, 
what your eligibility is in any field and acting as if it's something else. You're just an embarrassment to others and to yourself.